Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be looking at the first 22 verses of that chapter this morning. <clears throat> the title of this sermon is called Going Down the Right Road. Going Down the Right Road. Rich, you'll appreciate this opening illustration. It's about jogging. I know you like to run, or you used to tell me about running around the lake and all that. Well, um, many years ago, I uh, spent a semester of school in London, England. And uh, I lived in, you know, this very congested area where you had, you know, all of these apartments and flats all kind of smashed together on these curved streets. And uh, it was just a crazy maze of streets. Um, and, uh, and I used to run in those days. And so I looked forward uh, to going out for a morning jog, um, not so much for the sake of the jog, but for the journey, for, for what I might find on my, on my little couple mile run. And, uh, and I didn't know how to get from one place to the other unless I was uh, on the subway. So I would just go out on these morning runs and, you know, this morning I'd take a left, next morning I'd take a right, the third morning I wouldn't remember which way I'd went and just choose. And uh, the exciting thing is um, I never knew what I was going to find on these little runs. So, so one morning, I'd, I'd take one particular route, and I'd end up, you know, kind of happening upon some rather nondescript, kind of boring government buildings. But then another morning, I'd take a different route, and I'd be right in front of this ancient, beautiful cathedral. I mean, it was really, uh, it was really thrilling. Um, <clears throat> I used my freedom to go wherever I chose, but I never knew where that would lead me. But that's not how freedom in Christ works. That's not how freedom in Christ works. We are free to do a lot of things. We've been talking about this freedom for, for a couple of weeks now. We're, we're free to eat and drink and delight in the things that God has provided for us. The Lord has, of course, not given his people the right to sin, to, to be immoral, uh, to be a blight on the name of Christ. That's not what we mean by freedom, of course. But he has secured for us, um, he secured for us not the right to live a sort of self-absorbed life, but the right to, to live a truly free life, a, a, a life that is an abundant life of countless freedoms that are to be directed toward the love of God and the love of neighbor. And so we need to make sure we make the right choices in how to use or even set aside those rights in any given situation. We need to, if you will, go down the right road with our rights. We need to pick these right directions to go. And in our text today, we're reminded what's at the end of those roads. Pay attention as we would turn to God's word now. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll read the first 22 verses of that chapter. And uh, hear the God who loves us speak in these words, friends. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, and as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, just as I had to make choices about what road to run down when I lived in London all those years ago. So Christians must make choices about what direction they should take their freedoms. But doing so has far more important, uh, uh, far more important ends than simply, you know, seeing what you're going to see as you jog down the road. And so our theme this morning is where you run with your rights has eternal consequences. Where you run with your rights or your Christian freedoms has eternal consequences. In other words, you have to choose what to do with your rights, how to practically employ them. You have a right to participate in politics or drink alcohol or go to a secular concert, but how do you see those rights? How do you how do you value them? How will you employ them? Will you run down the road of protecting them at all costs? Or will you be willing to lay down those rights for others as you choose perhaps a different route? How this plays out in your life, friends, where you run with your rights has eternal consequences. And we'll consider two different roads to run down with your rights this morning. The first of them is traveling down uh, what I call the road of grumbling. Traveling down the road of grumbling leads to destruction. And the way the passage is framed, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate that from the first part of the the, the, uh, the text, verses 1 through 12, and then pick it up in 18 through 22. 
to talk about this road of grumbling that leads to destruction. Verses 1 through 12, and then again 18 through 22. For the second road, I'm going to grab that middle section that I skipped. Okay? Well, what do I mean by the road of grumbling? That's not something we normally talk about. That's not something that rolls off your tongue. What I mean by the road of grumbling is this. Those who profess to know Christ can see their freedoms as the most important thing in their lives. They can see those freedoms that Christ has secured as the most important things, the most treasured part of their lives. We could take our rights too far, can't we? Using them selfishly, no matter the cost to other Christians. Chapter 8 was about that, that, that very topic, a very specific one, about eating meat offered to idols and, and so crushing the consciences of, of weaker uh, believers. But we can take our rights too far, our freedoms to places that are unhelpful. We can do so selfishly even at the hindrance of the gospel mission, or even the honor of Christ's name. Take participating in politics as an example. As Christians, we're certainly free to avail ourselves of the political process. I love politics. I watch the vice presidential debates, okay? I, I, I mean, we are free to be as involved in politics in this country as Christians as, as we want. We're certainly free to avail ourselves of the political process, voting or not voting, demonstrating or not demonstrating. And God has put us in a country that affords and even encourages us to criticize those in government and support political movements and candidates even. Christians have the right to participate in politics. But those who profess Christ can be consumed by their freedom in the political realm. Have you ever seen this? sort of Christian that all they talk about is politics. They never seem to be encouraging anyone in Christ. They never seem to be reaching out to unbelievers with the gospel. But boy, just ask them about the latest Senate bill that's about to be voted on. They can run down a road that is marked by constant arguing and browbeating, where seemingly every conversation is turned to praising a party's platform or mocking a president or governor who emerged from an opposing party. and grumbling to be on Christ's mission. There's a great temptation to run down this road, this road of grumbling, thinking that realizing your freedoms to the greatest possible extent is, is, is what life's really about. But a life like that leads to destruction. No matter how much you call yourself a Christian, if your life is only marked by your love of your freedoms, that's not a Christian life. Right, look at verse 12 there. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's a very sobering statement, isn't it? Think you're all set? Be careful. Think you're, think you're, think you're having a great time in your Christian freedoms? Be wary, friend. Be wary that that is all you're living for. This road of grumbling, this path of loving self rather than others, this is describing a life that's concerned with exercising freedoms in order to win arguments or elections. 
But the church is called to enjoy freedoms until they get in the way of sharing the gospel. Did you hear me? The church is called to enjoy freedoms until they get in the way of sharing the gospel. This is, this is so important for us to realize. Until love demands we sacrifice our rights. That's, we use those freedoms until that point. Paul had urged the Corinthians to follow his example at, at this very uh, point. Remember what he wrote there at the end of chapter 9. Let your, let your eyes drift up to the last chapter, chapter 9, verse 22. Remember that famous phrase he uttered there? I have become all things to all people that by all means... I might save some. He was willing to live, a like, live like a Jew to win Jews, he had said just before that. He, he'd be willing to live like a Gentile in order to win Gentiles. That's what Christians are called to do. Joyfully and willingly lay down rights in order to lead people to the Savior. That's what the Christian mission is. That's what the Christian life is. But so often those who claim Christ make the choice to hold on to their rights instead of caring about the lost. They complain about not getting what they have coming in their eyes rather than laying aside their interests for the sake of others in the church. And I wonder if you live like that. Do you? Are you someone that's just consumed with your own rights? I mean, when, when's the last time, seriously, you made a substantial sacrifice for somebody in this church for their good? When's the last time that you laid aside something that you really enjoy so that you could share Christ with somebody and that activity wouldn't get in the way, wouldn't, wouldn't drown out the gospel message? Have you ever done that? If you live on this road of grumbling, Hear this warning. That's the, load, that's the road that leads to destruction. This is a continuation of what Paul has already been writing. I, I mean, it just, it just is more of the warning that at the end of chapter 9. We've already looked up there once. Look now at verse 24 of chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He's talking about eternity here. Live a life. Keep the faith. Show yourself to be a Christian so that you'll get eternal life, friends. That was the, the warning there. And Paul had added that with respect to how he saw his rights as a Christian, he had sacrificed rights so that others might be saved. That's, that's running the race. That's being a Christian. That's the kind of life that gets the reward of eternal life at the end because it shows our faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is the, the juice that, that gives us the power to want to sacrifice for other people. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. We looked at this last time. The Lord Jesus had taught his disciples that in Matthew 10 and verse 22 and it's referenced in, in chapter 9. Only those who use rights given to them to glorify the Savior and seek to win people for him will receive the reward of eternal life. Not because they've worked for it. Not because they've earned it. But because that's what faith in Christ looks like. A life of sacrificing and seeking the, the salvation of other people through that sacrifice. This is great motivation, as we saw last week, for continuing in our faith as demonstrated by our lives of laying down our rights. 
Those who grumble about their freedoms. Those who, are com who complain about having to, to love those with weak consciences and lay down their rights. Such people set themselves against Christ who laid down far greater rights, the rights of the divine Son of God, the freedoms of the King of Heaven, and the Creator of the world. You see the, the contrast? If you live this life running down this road of grumbling and, and always demanding your way and, and, and ev everyone else be damned, you're running down a road that Christ never set foot on. You see, what, you see the distinction here? You see the warning that's why, that's why I said that the, the, the road that you run down with your rights, it has eternal consequences. Paul had himself, uh, Paul had, had held himself out as an example of laying aside his rights, I mentioned. That's what, chapter, uh, that's what chapter 9 is all about. He laid aside his right to make his living from the Corinthians so that they might take the gospel seriously and be saved by it. But part of his motivation was that if he had not been disciplined to sacrifice his rights for others, he would be disqualified. That is not reach heaven. God uses many powerful tools of grace to keep you and I saved till the end. And warnings like this are one of them. Those who turn freedoms into things to be demanded, no matter the cost to others, those who see their rights as things to be exercised to the fullest, or God will be maligned by them, those who are unconcerned with Christ's mission to win the lost, such people will not reach heaven. Think about that. Cause that, grab hold of that as a motivation to run the race well, friends. Think about what the alternative is. To run a race for your own personal mission? That's a road that leads to destruction. So be motivated by that warning and run the right road. Make the right decisions. Have the right pattern in your life where you're willing to sacrifice your rights for the good of others, for the glory of Christ, for the salvation of some, as, as Paul wrote. Where you run with your rights has eternal consequences. And Paul uses illustrations from the Old Testament in this text to highlight the reality of this warning. In other words, Paul didn't just come up with this. this these patterns have been all throughout Israel's history, and he cites a bunch of them here so, to, to, to further this, this, this argument, so that we would hear the sobriety of this warning. Look first at verses 1 through 4 there. He writes, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now he is, he's like just cram-packed a whole bunch of history into, into these words. But he starts... He starts that description, that summary of different things that ha that's happened to Israel. He starts by introducing it with this phrase. Did you see it right there at the beginning of verse 1? I skipped it. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. The logical connection, that first word for, connects back to, to Paul saying he disciplines himself 
By God's grace, he continuously beats up his flesh that wants to demand his rights. He continues to lay down his rights, continues to be all things to all people so they will not be disqualified. I don't want you, therefore, to be unaware of what's happened before now. That's the connection. That's how you connect 9 into 10 here. Now he says, in effect, you also need to not disqualify yourselves by running in the direction of satisfying your own rights and, and desires to the detriment of the mission and the destruction of your own souls. And here in these first few verses in chapter 10, Paul says, don't think this danger wasn't a reality in Israel. Your forefathers had the same things they had to choose. In these verses, in verses 1 through 4, Paul recounts the events of, of, of Exodus 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. Some of the most extraordinary acts of love and deliverance and provision and nearness the people experienced at the hand of God. This is the Exodus. The parting of the Red Sea, the, the walking on dry ground to safety, the, the pillar of cloud that provided protection and, and, and guidance, the, the, the miraculous feedings in the, in the wilderness that, that, that we heard <laughs> spoke of in, an, in another way uh, by Jesus in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark. But Paul's saying all of these extraordinary things happen to Israel. This catalogs God rescuing Israel from Egyptian slavery, leading them, providing them, protecting them. Paul's quick to attribute these saving acts of God as the work of Christ. Did you notice that in verse 5? This detail, while certainly true, or rather verse 4, uh, this, this detail, while true, that Christ was the deliverer of the Old Testament, saints. I believe Paul shared this detail in order to make the illustration all the more of a connection between the Christian church at Corinth and these ancient peoples. But why the illustration? Why bring up this history of Israel that they got all these blessings? Why the need for the Corinthians to connect themselves to the Jews of the wilderness well, it's all about verse 5. Nevertheless, despite all of these extraordinary things that the Israelites experienced at the gracious hand of God, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. Not even experiencing incredible, miraculous blessings with the people of God is enough to keep you from God's displeasure. If you live a life of complaint, selfishly obsessed with what you ought to be provided, and that was what was going on in all of these chapters. Just before God split the Red Sea, the Israelites were like, you let us out here to die? in the wilderness. Oh, the meat pots we enjoyed in Egypt, grumbling. And on and on it went throughout those travels. Not only experiencing these extraordinary gifts, deliverances from God with the covenant community were enough to keep God's displeasure away from them. 
those that grumbled and complained and demanded that their rights were most important of all. Almost all of that adult generation, save a few, died in the wilderness at the doorstep of the promised land. Israel complained and cursed and demanded comfort and refused to walk by faith and willingly risk anything to further God's plan, and so he smoked them. He did not let them go into the promised land. He killed them in the desert. That's the example he's giving. You want to run down the road of grumbling? You want to be all about your rights and freedoms? And you don't care about other people? You don't care about the honor of God and his plan? Guess what's at the end of that road for you? Destruction. It happened in Israel. What's the upshot? Claiming to be a Christian. Claiming to be a Christian. Even being with others in the church who have experienced incredible, incredible transformation and sharing times of God's grace, his great care and blessing with the people. Claiming to be a Christian, being among people and experiencing great things at God's hand does not guarantee heaven. Not if you're living all about yourself. Eternal life with God is only for those who endure to the end, who evidence their faith by lives of sacrifice, not selfish demands. You have to take your freedoms in the right direction. Because traveling down the road of grumbling leads to destruction. It has eternal consequences. And just so we don't try to, we can downplay this, this like complaining thing. Like, is complaining really all that bad? I mean, I've made an art of it. But, but look at the, the way grumbling and complaining is described in the text. In verse uh, 6, Paul describes it as evil. And in the next verse, in verse 7, he calls it idolatry. More on that in a, in a few minutes. In the next few verses, in verses 7 through 10, Paul rehearses still more of Israel's tragic history. Among the most wicked were times in, in which Israel took their freedom to worship God and, and took, it, took those freedoms down dark, rebellious paths. Exodus 32 and Numbers 21 and 25 tell of Israel's impatience with the Lord. What's taken Moses so long? Tells of their impatience, speaking against God because their expectations weren't being met. And also tells of them participating in worshiping pagan idols, which included great, gross acts of immorality. Once again, Paul shared these pages from Israel's history to show that God's wrath came against them and killed thousands by the sword or serpents or even wiped out by the angel of death that we have heard about in the Exodus story that killed the firstborn in the plague against Egypt. And all of these things show a pattern that Christians are to learn from. All of these things, they, they, they were recorded, they happened and were recorded for our benefit. It's twice repeated. Look at verse 6. Now these things happened to them as an example that we might not desire evil as they did. 
And then again in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Where you run with your rights has eternal consequences, and God has it baked into the very fabric of the Bible itself so that we'll see it. Seeing your rights as the most important thing is like bowing down to them as your God, idolatry. Doing so will lead you to evil, insane practices. In verses 19 to 22, Paul returns to the topic of eating meat offered to idols to demonstrate that possibility. That possibility that when you're all about your freedoms and they become idolatrous to you, you'll do some rather insane and wicked things. And so he, he picks back up that idea of eating meat offered to idols in verses 19 through 22 to demonstrate it. He addressed this, of course, first in chapter 8, as I've mentioned. There he had admitted that the mature Christians rightly understood that, that pagan gods don't really exist. That little wooden statue isn't really a god. And, and so because of that, meat offered to them in sacrifice is just meat. There wasn't any bad juju on it. They, could, they were free to eat it. They could, be, they could buy it at the marketplace. They could fry it up on their grill or whatever. But in verses 19 through 22, he warns them that they ought not to take that freedom to perverse lengths. Just because there's not really false gods, and just because the meat that was so-called offered to them, right, uh, just because you have the freedom to eat that meat because it's just meat, don't take that freedom to perverse lengths, like participating in the idol worship itself while eating the meat. For such worship engages with demonic powers and is an act of spiritual adultery against the Lord. It's fine if you take the meat and have a dinner with it, but don't go into the pagan temple and partake of the eating of the meat and, and participate in, 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 in the worship of, of the demonic powers are, are, are there with. Those who pound their fists and demand their rights will throw off all restraints and engage in shocking sin in order to get what they want. We know this, we know this um, from James 4's teaching, right? Why do you quarrel among yourselves? Because you want something and it's an idol and you'll fight and kill to get it. You'll do perverse things in order to satisfy that, that, that idolatrous desire. And so the warning continues here. Those who demand their rights will throw off all restraint. They'll do things no one ever thought somebody who named the, Christ, uh, the, the name of Christ would do. Those who give in to this temptation and abandon, to, abandon the call to follow Jesus' example of love and sacrifice for the good of others, such people... We can do this, friends. We can hold on to our freedoms, our rights, so strongly that we, will, that, that we can go to these idolatrous lengths. We're, we're, it's as if we're bowing down to our freedoms. I'm going to be as political as I want. I don't care if it completely squashes my ability to talk to anybody about Jesus. That's now your idol, friends. 
And we could do this with, the, I mean, I'm just using that one example. There's a million examples we could use. We need to learn the lesson of history. We too live in the end times. Jesus Christ came into the world and ushered in these, this final era of human history. The Corinthians and us are in that same era. The Corinthian church, our church, we need, to be, we need to beware of what happens to people who demand their own way, who run down this road of grumbling, shaking their fists to get what they think they deserve. If that describes you, if that describes you, if you are a person who seems to always be the dissenting voice because you, you, can, you just can never seem to yield, if you're the one who never seems to submit to anyone, if you're the one who always takes the I'll take my ball and go home then approach to settling differences, if you're the one who's obsessed with exercising his rights without a care for who it hurts, or whether it gets in the way of leading somebody to Jesus. Friend, you need to know that such people don't see heaven. You need to hear this warning this morning. Such people come to destruction under God's anger. But this warning is meant to be a prod. This, this is written to the church. This is meant to be a prod to keep people, God's people from going down the wrong road with the rights. Where, where you run with your rights has eternal consequences. The road of grumbling leads to destruction, but that's meant to be a prod so that you'll run down the other road. And, and that, that road is the one to which we turn now. Be encouraged, Christian. The road of grace leads to life. The road of grace leads to life. We see that in those middle verses there in verses 13 through 17. Let your eyes fall on the wonderful words of verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Glory. The same temptation to turn back to your sinful, selfish ways that Christ saved you from, that temptation is not unique to you. We all have that temptation. I, I face this temptation all the time. I'm a selfish man that wants my own ways. I don't know if you can relate. My flesh is always dragging me back there. But that temptation is not unique to me. If you find yourself slip, slipping back into that arrogant, idolatrous, fist-pounding, insisting on you get what you feel you have the right to way, if you find that temptation overtaking you, rest assured that it's commonplace. All Christians experience it, and in weakness, sometimes fall prey to it. Now, this isn't just a hey, everybody's lousy, so feel comfortable with the lousy. That's not the argument. The reason that it should encourage you that that temptation is not unique to you is because it does not take God by surprise. 
You haven't come up with some life that God hadn't thought what might take place. He knew the likes of you and me when He sent Christ into the world to save us. The, the, the kind of selfish complainers that we are. That's exactly who He sent His Son to buy back from sin. And the ongoing power of knowing Christ and, and, and Him walking with us includes the power to reverse our course again and again. As we experience the temptation to see ourselves and our freedoms as more important than leading others to Jesus or helping weaker saints grow in their relationship with the Lord, when we experience that temptation, that, friend, right there is where we are met with God's grace. Right there is where grace is available to us. So when you feel the weight of that temptation, when you, when you feel that ugliness start come, you know, kind of boiling back inside you, you know, husbands and wives, you know, when, when that disagreement starts to get ugly, when you start to start pounding your fist and stomping your foot and going, I'm the man, I'll decide which way we're going. That kind of stuff that ever happened to you? When you feel that kind of that, that gross, bitter, sinful weed start to grow back in you, that's the time to turn to God for help. And you will find it abundantly. We need to get in the habit of repenting again and again of our sins. Turning back again to the Lord and saying, Lord, help me. I don't want to run down this road. You've saved me from this, and I can, I can feel the pull, and I need your help. This is reasonable to spiritual people, what I just said. That, that's reasonable. That's what we expect of our Savior. And it is indeed what our Savior is like. It, it, it's the grace of the Gospel of God that saved us and has helped us on our spiritual walk a million times before. And so Paul uses words of love in his exhortation. Look at it there in verse 14 and 15. Therefore, my beloved. He doesn't say, therefore, you skunks. It's like we're all in this. We all have this common temptation. My beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The logic of the Gospel is, is, is reasonable to spiritual people. And so the reasoning that follows is strength for our journey. Grace to meet the temptations that will come. Look at verse 16, first of all there. The cup of blessing that we bless, Paul writes, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? clear allusion here to the Lord's table, but he means the substance of it. Verse 17 goes on to say that he is, that Christ is the only source uh, for the pow of the power we need. Everyone in the church goes to him for power to endure temptation. He's the only, he's the only Savior of the world. He's the only one that has the sort of power to overcome temptation, to, to help us escape the draw of the road of grumbling. So in these two verses, 16 and 17, we are directed to our intimacy with the Savior as we remember what He has done and how the power of knowing Him reaches to every possible road we might find ourselves on. 
there is wild practicality to being united to Jesus by faith. He speaks of our participation with Christ in Christ's sacrifice. Our union with Him results in our tapping into Christ's power to sacrifice Himself even to death. We particip- when we worship Jesus, when we give our lives to Him, when we turn to Him again and again and are united to Him by faith, we, we get the benefit of His sacrifice. And it bleeds into us so that we find ourselves willing to sacrifice. You follow the logic here? We tap into this power that is in our Savior. We, we, get this, we don't get just saved later for eternity. We do get that. But we get this ongoing power of being united to Him so that we can overcome these temptations. This is one of the great realities the Lord spoke of when He announced that He was the bread of life in John 6. Listen to this one particular aspect of, 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 that, of that speech he gives. John 6 and verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. There's a reciprocity there. Now, he's not talking about cannibalism here, right? That's what a lot of the, the people that heard those words thought and, and they turned from following him. It, it doesn't mean that when we take communion that the bread and wine literally turn into Christ's body and blood like some believe. What it means is that faith is internal and intimate, kind of like eating and drinking. Faith unites you to Christ and gives you eternal life, but it also gives you the power to participate in the kind of life Christ lived, laying down His life so that others might be reconciled to God. When you're devoted to Christ, when you're striving after Him, when you're turning from your sin and looking for grace for help, what you find is you're in Him, but He's also in you. So Christian, you're united to Him so you have access to His power so you don't have to live this terrible life of grumbling and demanding what you want when you want it. You have the power to lay that aside. Your freedoms aside anytime they get in the way. Anytime they get in the way of leading somebody to Christ or helping somebody weaker than you in the church. With Jesus, you can take your rights down the road of grace and so have the ability... To follow his example, laying down your rights for the good of others to the glory of God. Don't be like me, haphazardly running down the streets of London, not really knowing where one turn might, might, might take me. You have to run down the right road. Because where you run with your rights has eternal consequences. Learn from the lessons and patterns God set down for us in Israel's history. Running down the road of grumbling leads to destruction. Think about that and avoid that path at all costs. And learn from the transforming power of knowing Christ. Running down the road of grace that leads to life. Full life for you to overcome your selfish temptations. And also life for those you serve by laying down your rights so that they might follow Christ more closely. I trust that is a word of encouragement and exhortation to you this morning.
Take a few moments of quiet reflection over it.